Greetings, friends. Welcome back to the Film Alchemist Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Griffey, joined as always by my blood-soaked, very depressed <laughs> EMT co-pilot, Alex Dandino. I don't know if that's the best summation of this movie, but... <laughs> I don't know. I think you kind of nailed it personally. <laughs> yeah. You could be the Goodman Sizemore or Ving Rames to my Nick Cage. Who are you choosing? Oh, I'm definitely Ving Rames. Yeah. <laughs> Big Daddy Marcus is coming for you. <laughs> okay. So this is it. Uh, this is the fan-selected Nicolas Cage joint for the month. Our dear friend, fan of the show, Heath Benfield, wrote us this very impassioned almost like a mini essay right yeah a it was tree, it was stay, very it was very heartfelt yes and it, it was very insightful and as to why he thought this movie summarized in a in an exceptional way a lot of the quirks and ticks and abilities of Nicolas Cage having watched it again I couldn't agree more this is a great Nicolas Cage movie uh we still have one more to go wild at heart um but yeah, so this week we're doing the Martin Scorsese, Nicolas Cage jam, Bringing Out the Dead. Now, I haven't seen this. This is like one of those movies you watch in college because you have to, right? It has all of the like well, boxes you have to check for a film studio. Yeah, well, it's one of those like <laughs> it's one of those on the edge movies because it's Martin Scorsese and Paul Schrader coming back together. And you're sitting there and you're kind of like, I want to watch this movie because, you know, I'm better than, you know, I'm better than my cohorts here. That's that's my Paul Schrader, Martin Scorsese movie, you know? Yeah, but, it's one of those great film mo student movies where you're like, I'm not going to enjoy this at all, but through my misery, I'll have something to prove that I'm better than the rest of you. Exactly. <laughs> well, it's like one of those things. It's like, what'd you watch last night? Oh, fucking watch, like, Bringing Out the Dead and then El Topo by Jodorowsky. You don't even realize. Like that's, Oh, you've never seen Holy Mountains? <laughs> Pleb. Yeah, exactly. Pleb. That's that's what have the, fun watching your friends reruns and ruining the culture of the Western <laughs> world. That's that's truly what the, I mean. Look, I, I I liked this movie, but that's truly what this movie is. Is like this is like deep cut film student movie. Yeah, that's the thing. I remember not really vibing with this movie the first time I saw it. Right. Um, in fact, I had almost no memories of it at all. I mean, which is. A lot of also movies I watched in my college <laughs> ages because I probably turned them on when I'm like drunk and I'm like, I need to watch up there to sleep. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I I really loved this movie this time. Not just like loved this movie. I um, think, but I, I think, think there's a part of it. This is a movie you can only fully embrace. I'd imagine once to you, you get to the point of life where you start feeling like it all might be useless. <laughs> I remember the trailer for this. <laughs> this is my, like, I watched it in college, obviously, because I was one of those film school douchebags, but um, um, haven't changed a whole lot, obviously. Um, but <laughs> you're just, you're like a Pokemon. You just keep evolving to a bigger, douchier yeah, version. Exactly. Of that <laughs> it, it just, like, becomes more and more and more. Now, I've seen Jodorowsky movies you haven't even heard of. No. Um, now I do it unironically. <laughs> I think I, I, the thing I remember most about this movie from my youth was, uh, the trailer was associated with a VHS that I had to, that I watched all the time when I was at work because I worked at a tuck shop in high school and literally nothing. Nobody shows up in a tuck shop unless it's like prom season. So a lot of times we just watch movies. So I watched uh, I feel like I watched this uh, movie with Sigourney Weaver called Copycat a lot. And the trailer was at the front of it constantly. <laughs> Wow, deep cuts indeed. Yeah, sorry. That, I think I think it was that. I mean, I know I'd seen this trailer so many times because there's that scene yeah. of Nicolas Cage running out into the moonlight. You're like, oh, yeah, I remember that like from the trailer. They just throw it in the yeah. trailer. Well, no, I remember originally thinking this was going to be like a horror movie when I yeah. first saw about it and all this. And then you're like, 100%. Oh, shit. So, yeah, this is a uh, this movie's essentially. It's, it's one of those kind of just tonal examinations of all of the human experience, right? Yeah. It's a, a hyper-focused lens. There, yeah, there, there's not a lot of narrative. It it kind of has that awesome vibe that a lot of great movies from the 90s were having where we're just going to sit with these characters in their real-world settings yeah. and just kind of examine where we're all at, man. And and I, I've always liked this kind of movie. I know it seems weird because a lot of people who, you know, talk movies with me in this, I, I can be a bit of a stickler on how narratives unfold. Right. But I also like movies where they just say narrative be damned. And there there is a through line in this movie, right? We oh, have yeah. the through line of one patient. But for the most part, you could say this is a narratively devoid film. <laughs> and I think it's awesome. 
So what we get, right, is Nicolas Cage is this this down-and-out ambulance EMT uh, worker, right? Of course he's a drunk, because every fucking movie we picked this month, Nicolas Cage has to have a drinking <laughs> problem. <laughs> wow. You really got typecast early on. I wonder why that was. I guess we really did go for it, didn't we? Jeez. <laughs> I didn't even realize right, that so, until now. So, yeah, the setup for Nicolas Cage is he's an EMT guy, and he says, I haven't saved anyone in months. Um, he's hit this weird point where he talks about if you save someone, there's kind of this levity and brightness, and he's worried that he doesn't have his skills anymore. He's lost his touch. He's almost becoming the Grim Reaper. He just shows up to kill people, and he's starting to fantasize about spirits leaving their bodies and not wanting him to bring them back in. Right. So it's, it's this kind of bigger philosophical issue he has well we start off and he he gets called to save this old man having a heart attack the old guy dies and he brings him back yeah right so we're starting off with him doing what he has been saying he wishes he could but the the way it plays out is unfulfilling and he then continues to spiral out right i mean the doctor break they bring him in he's like he's been dead long enough he's plant food right and so this guy, this Burke guy, becomes the anchor throughout the movie of Nicolas Cage coming back to see if his deeds can uh, actually have any good, right? And then, and then we go to the ER, and this becomes this this total experience of uh, nihilism and uselessness of all humanity. <laughs> yeah, the ER, the ER has like such again. This is like this. It's really strange. Because this is Martin Scorsese, and this is not the kind of... I, I mean, to be honest with you, I don't think this is the kind of movie he normally makes to me. Like, he doesn't make movies where these characters, like... Like, the uh, cop who's, like, running the waiting room, like... <laughs> don't make me take, don't make me take off my sunglasses. Like, <laughs> I love that fuck. Like, Every character in this movie is awesome. Right. But that <laughs> is, like... Cause I was watching. I even wrote down, I was like, that's a distinct feature of, like, a Tarantino character. Like, someone would be shouting that in a Tarantino movie. And it's really interesting that this becomes, like, that kind of thing. Because, honestly, another, on another note, I haven't ever seen Paul Schrader write something like this. Like, Paul Schrader writes, like, heavy like heavy nihilist darkness for sure. But I've never seen him write kind of like, there's a lot of stuff in this that's almost, like, slapsticky. Like, there's stuff in well, there that I'm like, there's no way Paul Schrader, like, Paul Schrader is fucking coked out for sure, like, scribbling right. this down. I mean, well, yeah, and I think some of that is necessity, right? Because I had read that the source book is actually even darker. And oh, that, really? You know, this the version of this New York that they show in the movie isn't even as bad as what <laughs> is in the book. And I was like, Jesus Christ. Like, what a page turner. Uh, but, but, yeah, it, it's such a funny thing because the way they show New York in the ER in this is there's just this guy, Nicolas Cage, who becomes almost this angelic presence, right? Floating mm -hmm. around from bad thing to bad thing. Yeah. In the ER and the greater world, they do a lot of distinctions. But in the ER, all we see are people fighting, bleeding, screaming at each other. There's the front desk doctor who's just like, oh, you fucked up and now we got to save you. Great. All the other doctors are like, don't bring him in here. Yeah. Get him out. There's this total just uh, the, the first thing they have to do, I guess, necessarily, right, is this this breaking down of the institution of the hospital, which we all think of as this ivory tower where if you're sick you go to a hospital and they fix you right and immediately they fucking rip the guts out of this and turn oh yeah this hospital into a hellscape yeah and it, it then spills over everywhere so Nicolas cage is a guy whose entire job is to save people and make the world a better place but him and all of his other you know co-workers <laughs> don't feel like that's what they're doing and it doesn't seem like they're helping at all it's a it's a really weird position for a medical uh, drama to unfold. Yeah, none of the people, none of the medical professionals in this movie really want to be a medical professional anymore. It's kind of fascinating, actually. Like, right. Tom, like I think Tom Sizemore is the only character who's excited about being in the med medical profession in this. <laughs> and movie. even that's shaky at best. <laughs> yeah, and even that's mainly just like a taking advantage situation. But like, this movie is really a like to me. This movie is about the. This movie's about like the overall contrast of like what an EMT and like what people who are in the field like supposed to be giving life, like what they're trying to do versus when they show up at the hospital and everyone's like, oh, God, great. Another person we got to save. Fucking idiots don't know how to keep themselves alive. Like that's what it constantly is. And I think that's what's interesting is Nicolas Cage 
is it, like I felt like a couple of times Nicolas Cage is almost trying to save people so that they, he doesn't have to take them into the hospital. Like that more than huh. often is what's happening. Yeah, it's it's very strange, but yeah. So to me, early on, you spend most of the movie with this concept of what is the point of all of these lives period, right? Is there this total pointlessness to right. it? <laughs> Especially you feel bad for the medical workers because their job and what they've signed on to do is, so I think at one point at the end of the movie, right? They even, they, you know, the ghost says to Nicolas Cage, no one asked you to suffer. Right. But in a way that's his whole fucking job. And it's, what is the point of trying to save these often helpless and terrible people that seem like they shouldn't be saved at the expense of these walking dead men that are the medical professionals. Right, right. <laughs> and so Nicolas Cage is in this fine balancing act of he looks so fucking gaunt and depleted. Oh, he's like... There's so little left of him, but somewhere on the inside, he's one of the only characters still grappling with yeah. this battle of, is it still worth it? Every other character, like you said, pretty much is resigned in some way or is medicating to avoid this conflict. Right. I mean, what's interesting too is Nicolas Cage is in the movie. In the movie, his self medication, which he's drinking a lot, which again he looks exactly the same way he does as Ben Ander- Ben Sanderson in Leaving Las Vegas. Yeah, just with combed hair. Yeah, like he just combed <laughs> his hair or like got a haircut or something like that's. But he's the only one who's self medicating. I feel like a lot of the time he's the only one who's self medicating to like block things out everyone else is resigned and like self-medicating or doing whatever they want to do because they are like you were saying resigned to the fact that this is a shithole we're just doing we're just we're literally like a waiting station for people to die he's the only one who's still like i'm going to save someone because he's on this street yeah like i thought that was a really interesting beat and i don't remember that from when i was younger was like the bad like the bad beat like his streak right now of like every person he picked up has died like that's what's so interesting I mean, that's but the the funny thing is, is how much he internalizes that, because every person we meet in the movie, they make sure to show us that there's some kind of bad circumstance or life beat to where we shouldn't really feel bad for them. We, we shouldn't have as much empathy for them. Right. And I don't know that that's what Scorsese wants. Right. Maybe that's the trick of the movie is like Nicolas Cage. We're supposed to find empathy beyond, you know, like Mr. O, it's the stench. And with Noel, it's. The drugs and the violence. Did you know that was Mark Anthony when the movie started? No, dude. I had no fucking idea. idea. Holy shit. This movie's loaded with awesome fucking performances, and that is one of them. Yeah. But so I think this is the thing Nicolas Cage does well in this movie, right? Especially with Noel fucking being a crazy little bitch. (laughs) Nicolas Cage, while sitting there and looking like Lurch from the Addams Family, right? This kind of dead (laughs) golem of a man. (laughs) His eyes, you see this pure empathy and this burning desire for anything good. Yeah. And so even through his self-medication, it's a little different than everyone else, right? They all seem to have built this wall. Nicolas Cage, while looking devoid of anything, is also this open nerve. Yeah. Who's feeling it all the fucking time. Yeah. And, And, you know, they say it a lot, but it's in the eyes for Cage in this movie. There are scenes, like, I love the scenes with the voiceover where he's just looking around at this modern Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah. And even though, like, normally there could be a scowl or this and that, different actors would play with a scowl or, like, maybe a little more forlorn. He strikes this just perfect balance of dead and defeated, but this eye that craves, you know, that one seed of decency. It's Yeah. He's he's just like captivating. It's hard to take your eyes off of him in this movie. Well, I feel like yeah, I don't think it's forlorn cuz I agree like the look on his face the entire time in this film is more just like searching. Like that's how I would put it. Like it's a searching yeah. look in his face. Every single scene he's looking for meaning. He's looking for Ro- he's looking for Rose's face and all his all the people that he um, brings in this is something that a recurring motif is the face of this uh dead girl that he um brought into the mt uh or brought in the hospital quite some time ago but like this recurring motif of rose showing up he's constantly searching for her thinking that this is where the meaning lies it's really fascinating but something you brought up that i do want to point out is um we've watched quite a few Nicolas cage movies this month and there's one thing that i think gets overlooked a lot of the time is Nicolas Cage is honestly a masterful voiceover artist. Like, yeah, 
there is something about his voice and his just like docile tones that I don't know what it is. It, it does. It's not necessarily relaxing or anything like that, but his storytelling technique when he is required to do voiceover in movies, it's really under underappreciated. I mean, it's really something like he does it here. He does it in uh, Raising Arizona, Con Air. Like there's all kinds of like mm-hmm. voiceover moments he has, but every single movie he's in that he has to do voiceover in it. It's one of the few. It's one of the few occasions where I've heard voiceover in movies and really been engaged. Like because I do think you know it's that adaptation adage, Nicolas Cage, where like God help you if you use voiceover in your script. I laugh at that all the time, and I constantly think like, oh great, more voiceover. But like, it's so visceral when it comes from Nicolas Cage, and particularly in this movie because of the visuals that contrast it. Like mm-hmm. you're sitting in this, and you're. Like the reason they do this in this movie, I think, is because they need you to be in the Nicolas Cage mindset, so that as soon as you hit that first, as soon as you hit that um, that old man who has the heart attack, mm-hmm. that's when you're like, oh my god, like this is the last. This is maybe what if this is the last chance he has to not kill someone? Like there's like a whole run of run of run of the mill stuff going on here. It's really fascinating. But I love Nicolas Cage's voiceover in movies, particularly in this one, though. Yeah, well, it's considered this kind of cheat in filmmaking, right? Because it's a show-me-don't-tell-me medium. Right. But this this movie plays differently where it is just kind of this meditative soup of image and tone and lights and flashing, you know, sirens or uh, flashing lights, whatever. And what I think it is, in a way, the voiceover is a life raft to us. Yeah, totally. Because you can't just sit, like, that's the thing. We don't, we're not in his headspace, right? And Nicolas Cage is trying, and the images are trying to drag us down. Like, just one I'll never get out of my head is the guy who had no legs below the knees just crawling across the crosswalk. Oh, God. And you're just like, it's kind of just this little shot, but I was like, I'll never unsee that. Yeah. And I spent a lot of time after that being like, wait, is there, is that something that is real? This guy's just crawling through the fucking streets trying to and it, but that's what i mean right so the movie does that but by giving us this kind of nicholas cage inner debate right it gives us a very small glimmer of of hope mm-hmm. and the weird thing about voiceover to me and, and when it's done well is it has this this godlike quality right right so it, it kind of assures you that there is someone you know and in this case nicholas cage's character who is existing outside of this shitty story world that gives you that slight, slight, you know, subliminal hope that people are going to make it out of this thing. Okay. (laughs) Right. Right. I think that that's, it's interesting. Like, yeah, like that's, it's this, uh, the voiceover does this for us and it contrasts with this, like really very strange. I mean, again, this is this, it's a very strange lighting setup too for this whole movie. Like not to get too academic about it. Cause I don't like doing that. Cause we're not academics or anything, but like this is shot smart, like smart, smart AF is what the kids say. Smart, smart AF. AF. Sorry. But this movie is shot like super specifically. Like there's a lot of ca- in camera techniques, like a lot of sped up stuff and a lot of slowed down stuff, but also like there's a lot of high contrast lighting. Like, uh, those first couple of scenes are all like there's like a huge spotlight over everything. It's really interesting, yeah. and it gives Nicholas well, Cage especially like once weird we god quality. It's interesting. Yeah, once we get to the end of the film, it, I mean, it becomes this kind of punk rock fever dream that is just absolute. Insane. Yeah, and I think uh, that also hits with the with the ambulance lights. Anytime those things fly on, like. I love the way all that shit looks because it like it almost like you have to like squint your eyes while you're looking at the screen and you sort of just have to go with whatever Nicolas Cage is saying or because you're listening. But like those flashing lights are so intense sometimes in the frame. It's really cool. Yeah, no, this movie does a lot well. But to me, what this movie does the best is give Nicolas Cage amazing foils to play with. Oh, my God. Um, so let's let's do this. I wanted to kind of run through and talk about the other four people that are in the same because this movie plays in a way like a Christmas Carol setup, right? Mm-hmm. The various stages and reactions, coping mechanisms you can have to this job, right? Right. So on a small note, you would say the captain, right? The barking captain is such a small character, but I love him, right? The constant like, you've been late every day this week. And then he starts barking. He's like, I told him to sit on a big one. 
Yeah. And he's, he constantly is like, I'll fire you tomorrow. I'll fire you yeah. tomorrow. Come on. That's another and thing Nicolas I Cage love just... in this movie. The constant, <laughs> like, like Nicolas Cage is trying to get fired. But, like, that, like, it plays into that awesome desperation of, like, I don't want to be this anymore. I don't want to be this guy. And I'll fire you tomorrow. Right. Like, you're like, God. Well, he's, he's trying to rack up these very minor infractions. Yeah, to yeah. Have someone else get him to quit, but he still shows up. Like, showing like, up even late. Even showing up late shows a level of, I still kind of want to be here. And but yeah. I just I love that defeated line, right? When the captain's like, "Just get out there! I need bodies! I need bodies!" And he just goes, "I can bark too, man. <laughs> <laughs> I can bark too." You know? And you're like, "That's everything about this character, right? Like he just wants to run free and howl at the moon or whatever." Yeah. But he can't. So so we learn that from the captain. The captain doesn't seem affected by this at all. He's just this guy constantly doing these little band aid fixes, right? He just needs bodies on the field. He's he's very removed from it, right? But with the three other emt partners we get very different windows into the kind of stages of mental breakdown that happens when you're constantly dealing with trauma he has like super specific mania in each of these scenarios right and and they all help reflect back kind of the the serious trauma that cage is going through right? right so first up we have goodman in a very sedated role for this kind of movie for john goodman now, John Goodman is kind of the the big, sweaty, you know, why is it always on the sixth floor? <laughs> you know, he's a real clean freak. He doesn't seem to like to get his hands dirty and, like, he won't touch Noel. Right. He gets really mad when he has to mop out the thing. I, uh, where do you see John Goodman's stage in this, his reaction, and how does it help illustrate what Nicolas Cage does to you? I mean, to me, Nicolas, uh, John Goodman's character reflects this version of Nicolas Cage. This is, this is Nicolas Cage when we meet him. Like... Whereas we're watching Nicolas Cage try and revive this old man. Um, This is also John Goodman is this version of Nicolas Cage, almost this reflection of I need to get out of here. Like John Good. I thought it was really fascinating. Also kind of fat shaming him. But uh, John Goodman is constantly trying to figure out what to eat that night. Yeah, like, dude, that, there's a lot of that in this movie that's very pervasive. Yeah, and I feel like that <laughs> is sort of this interesting metaphor for Nicolas Cage's mindset, which is like, I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. And not only that, like, they're constantly missing the place to eat. Like, uh, right after they drop off the guy at the uh, hospital, they go back out, and he's just <laughs> – they go back out, and Johnny was like – Beef lo mein, man. Been thinking about it since I got on this morning. I know it's two minutes until they close. It's right there off six. And you just passed it. Like, it's all this, like, sort of stuff, which is, like, it's the thing that you want that you're never going to get. And but that- he also has this whole big reaction just to say, oh, fuck, I had that last night. I can't eat the same yeah. thing twice. Oh, I can't eat the same <laughs> thing twice. But that's, that like, what it is. That is such a funny moment. I love that. But that's another, that's this other aspect of Nicolas Cage, like, it's this repetition in his routine and it's this other thing. And it's, it's the beginning of the mania that you know is going to occur because he doesn't have, he's not fully there anymore. And I think that's the thing that I love the most about the character and about how John Goodman in this very brief, but really memorable portrayal goes is John Goodman is the version of Nicholas is the version of Nicholas Cage's character that wants out like that's, yeah, that's well, the- he also he talks about he'll just wait it out, start his own company. Right. You know, it's just who, you know, then I'll be the captain. Right. So when you see the captain who's kind of pulled back and just, you know, I promise I'll fire you. Just get out there. Get out there. John Goodman's the guy who he he's using as a shield. Just put in your time and get there. You know what I mean? And, and the, the great line in the John Goodman segment that I latch on to is when he's just looking at John Goodman sleeping on the pier. And Nicolas Cage is like, I just want to be able to sleep like that. Right. There, there's an ability of John Goodman to, yeah, through the food and and uh, you know trying not to get his hands so dirty and oh we'll take we'll take the good calls this and that. He's just biding his time because he can see this as a path to something greater. Right. Right. He's going to just be a captain and his wife's a nurse and the kids are going to school. So he has kind of this surviving through the dream of Americana, which Nicolas Cage clearly doesn't have. No, but he so had Goodman. Goodman's the most adjusted of the other EMTs we see, right? And he's it, not fully and, and lying it, to himself as much. And adjusted is a really interesting word to use for that. <laughs> well, I mean, as much as you can be. Oh yeah. Right? No, I mean, in, the, in this kind of world or career, I mean, as far as the other guys go, adjusted is definitely the word I'd use to describe John Goodman. But like, 
The, he seems like the one you'd want to be of the three, right? Yeah. If this is the Christmas Carol ghost scenario. Well, it's he's the one who's at, at minimum slightly more aspirational than Nicholas. Right. Cage. Well, he's like he's the ghost of Christmas. Man, it's man. You really hit on something cool there with the Christmas Carol analogy. I think that's interesting because he really is the ghost of Christmas past. But right. What's the interesting good old days when Nick Cage was just an EMT and he could save people and he could eat and sleep still. Right. But what's interesting is I think when you move towards Ving Rhames, he's almost more Fezziwig than he is Christmas present. Fucking Ving. Okay. This is, if I had to choose, if I had to choose who I'm riding with, it's definitely yeah. Ving Rhames. Dude. This it, is the best performance. This fucking in the movie. portrayal is the funny shit. It, I, I'm, I'm going on record. So fucking, this is, the, this is my favorite character in the movie. Cause he's so fucking funny. Cause this is the thing. He's kind of walking. He, he is that middle of the road guy. He's the present, right? Yeah. You can either live in the past like John Goodman, or you can teeter to the edge like Tom Sizemore, or right. completely melt down like Nicolas Cage, right? He's just this guy who's he's still keeping his eccentricity, and I, there's so much to this. But well, he's fucking, he's very ge- the constantly chewing on the cigar, the hitting on the, the ambulance lady is so funny. He does this like, hey, what up, baby? I'm here to help you, yeah. Big Daddy Marcus. But the scene that is the fucking best, right? Because he's constantly... This is the thing. He has this God complex. I know what you're going to say. Where he talks about how much he loves God, but you see it in him. He feels as if he's the channeler of the power. Yeah. Right? Just like the Pope must feel a little bit better than all the rest of us, right? Right, right. <laughs> <That's not the laughs> so Ving Rhames feels like he's this God-like character. So he's always preaching and he's like, let me tell you something, boy or son. Right? Yeah. All the and time. he has these little rules. What I love about Ving Rhames, though, is that scene when they go in the goth bar. Oh, my God. And the so kid good. the kid is like on death's doorstep. And he's just like, I'm not doing anything until you guys tell me the truth. And then he makes them all pray for, uh, what is it, I be banging? Okay. But that's the best is they ask him what his real name is. Like, his real name's like Chester or something. He's like, it seems Chester. Like he's like, or he's like, what's his name? I be banging. What's his real name, kid? Chester. I be banging. Like, I'm like, wow, this is amazing. Like, this is incredible filmmaking. And this is an incredible performance, though, that Ving Rhames turns in. Because you're right, though. He's like this version. He's he's this EMT who's very godly and very weird, but he also is chewing on a cigar and has fucking drinks in his in his backpack and all this other kind of shit. Well, he also says after that call, his next thing is, "Hey, let's go look at the hookers." Yeah, <laughs> and he's like, "God damn, can't even tell what's underneath there. Could be a skeleton for all." He's just like <laughs> freaking the fuck out. He's he's the best. Also, I love that there's other there's this other thing where he's constantly fixing his hair in the movie. Like, right. He's constantly fixing his hair. And I love that because he's an EMT. Like no one is like, no one's looking at the EMT with the bad Jerry curl and going like, Oh yeah. You know, like I love that dude. Like he, his like presentation and his feeling for himself is so fascinating. And also it might be the highest I've ever heard Ving Rhames voice go. Like I've never heard, (laughs) I've never heard his voice in that register. Like it's always down here. Always like right here. <laughs> I be banging. Yeah. But, Holy shit. I be banging. No, That's a great the cool scene. thing, right? So what Ving Rhames does to me so well is through his fucking chicanery, right? These little proclivities, right? He's got the cigar. He's always talking down. I've got it figured out. Right. I'm the agent of the Lord, right? I'll rebuke the spirit right. you know, for Jesus. He, but he's still the like, let's go look at hooker guys. And like upset <laughs> the hookers aren't whatever. Let's go look at hookers. He's this guy who he, he's f- broken in the same ways as Nicolas Cage. Yeah. Right. You know, but he, he puts on this fucking facade. So by doing that and sitting them side by side in that two shot, it lays bare more of where Nicolas Cage is at. Right. Cause this is something they do when Nicolas Cage starts talking to the voices. He has that great line, right? Where it's. You know, oh, they told me to kill Marcus. Like, don't you fucking play with me. (laughs) But but Marcus never flinches that he's talking to the voices, just what they're saying. Right. Right. We all have the ghost kind of thing. Right. So, you know, that underneath that fucking facade, he's fucked up, too. And this plays out in one of the most fucked up scenes in the movie, which was the birth of the twins. Oh, my God. Because this scene is not only fucked up, but. I mean, just the part where the guy and the girl, it's like, she can't be pregnant. We've never had sex. Yeah. There are legs sticking out of her. Three of them. Right. A breech birth. Which it's fucking which is just, just this grotesque, disgusting, 
I, I mean, it's gross. And the, the guy says, oh, it's a miracle, right? And you're just like, oh, my God, this is so fucking depraved. Yeah. So Nicolas Cage pulls him out and Ving Rhames gets handed the baby alive. Obviously, Nick Cage gets the dead baby. Of course. He runs it into the ER and it's just this fucking tragedy, right? He's in the little blanket. Nicolas Cage trying to save him. It's so fucking sad. When you come out, though, we get this this kind of reaction to the job, right? Ving Rhames is now almost just high, right? He's like a crackhead now. Yeah. He's so fucking ecstatic that they saved someone. I held that boy. It reminded me, like, I want to have a kid again. Whereas Nicolas Cage can't think about the one he saved, just the one they lost. Right. I think that's, like, that's... Again, it's it's the point of no return. Like, there's the... That's the turning point, too, for Nicolas Cage's character. And that's really the turning point for that scene. Because this movie is three vignettes. And that's, like, the turning point of the vignette is you have one guy who experienced life in the way that a newborn, like a, a new father would experience life. And you have the other one who experienced life in the way that Nicholas Cage as an EMT has been experiencing life. Like that's the really fascinating thing. And like, you get that dichotomy, but then you get back in the EMT truck and Oh man, they're like, they're like, they get the call from queen Latifah. Cause it's definitely queen Latifah, by the way. Um, <laughs> they get the call and like, she's like, pick it up. And he's like, Let's take it. And he grabs it. And it's in the middle of them trying to all like it's in the middle of them drinking in the EMT squad car while they're driving yeah. down the fucking uh, driving down the, the road. Like that is like this crazy split in half shit is like we're going to go save lives, but we might be drunk while doing it. Like there's like all this crazy well, not shit. Only that the pure fucking madness that's happening inside that cab. Right. Mm hmm. And then and then they fucking Ving Rhames guns it. He can't wait to get to the next one, right? He has that euphoria experience Nick Cage talks about. They flip the EMT truck. Nick Cage is laughing hysterically, right? Like he's kind of gotten his wish. Yeah. Climbs out and just says, I quit. And Ving Rhames, you know, with the boy, you think cause you quit, the ghost won't follow you. Yeah. And it's it's this fucking heavy moment of two guys who are very close to the same spot, but one just can't. Can't fucking put the mask on. Well, he quits. And not and only that, a, quits and like runs down the street laughing hysterically. That's that scene right. I was talking about in the beginning of the pod. Like he's laughing hysterically. And that's when Ving Rhames is screaming that in the background. And you're like, yeah, is he just going to quit finally? Or is he right. But fight? there's all these moments where Nicolas Cage with Mary Beth, right? He's trying to talk to her like a normal person. We should get some food, whatever. Right. He desperately wants to be Marcus. Yes. But he, he just cannot fake it well enough to get over this fucking enormous tragedy that his face bears. Uh, so I, I think Marcus does the most to illustrate what cage is doing while just being an exceptional film character. Yeah. I mean that, well, that he's a standout because I mean, God dude, Ving Rhames is just turning in just a monster performance. Oh, it's amazing. It's fucking amazing. And then when, just when you think we can't top big, da big daddy coming, uh, Tom Sizemore, is probably the closest to Cage at the moment. Um, and Cage, Cage sees Tom Sizemore as total catharsis, right? He's the devil on the shoulder. Oh, yeah, 100%. And the weird thing is Tom Sizemore is, like, amped to work with Nicolas Cage, which tells you a lot about where his headspace is at. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, yeah, so he's this EMT who calls himself his, his handle on the CB is the executioner. He has this, it's a full moon, the blood's going to run tonight, baby. Oh. We're going to see some blood. Yeah. He, His he's whole the one thing. who jumps in the ambulance to beat the fuck out of Noel earlier. Like, he is a fucking maniac. Yeah. This is the version, this is like, this is definitely Christmas future. This is the version of Nicolas Cage is totally unhinged, <laughs> hasn't slept in 10 days, and is just like going. And I mean, granted, like this whole thing, this whole segment starts off with him walking into the back to check on the old man, and he's hearing the old man's voice like begging him to let him die. Yeah, the psychic connection. Holy with the one he shit, wow. man! That is like some <laughs> intense shit. Not only that, like he's like, like you see it on his face too. Nicholas Cage is literally like, <coughs> like he's like trying to not pull the plug or rip this breathing tube out of this guy's throat. Like it's fucking insane. So clearly, Nicholas Cage is going totally bonkers. And then Tom Sizemore is like, Rivers are going to run. Rivers going to run red. Yeah. Like, he is, like, fucking nuts. The whole thing. Right. Well, he gets the call about a shootout, and he's like, come on, I don't want to miss it. 
Oh, right? Yeah. Like he's the only one who's fucking jazzed when the terrible stuff's happening. Right. Um, but then they yeah, go to the shootout. This, this weird. Yeah, I I don't understand. Like, <laughs> because this is Tom Sizemore has this. He I think he says it best when in his the way he treats the ambulance. Right. He's like, I've tried to kill this thing many times and it won't die. I can respect that. Right. It's this insane warrior's code. Right. And then the last shot we see of him is him fucking murdering the ambulance after maybe murdering after Noel. Probably murdering Noel. Uh. Like, he yeah, beats so, the so shit out Sizemore, of him in the park. Yeah, Sizemore, to me, is Nicolas Cage, but without the sympathy, right? There's a part of Nicolas Cage that still wants it to be good and wants to be saved. Right. Tom Sizemore is just here for the show. Yeah. I mean, I think right? that's, yeah, that's what it is. Like, Tom Sizemore is, Tom Sizemore's like, Tom Sizemore's like the football player in high school who had an amazing high school career and then literally never left high school and now he needs a job so he decides to be an EMT. Like that's yeah. that's what that is. But like more to the fact like the primordial version of that is Tom Sizemore is a character Tom Sizemore is a character who's this version of Nicolas Cage who never lived up to Nicolas Cage's standards for being himself. Like yeah. he wants to be a life giver. He wants to be a bringer of hope. And instead, he's the bringer of death. This him being saddled with a guy who calls himself the fucking executioner—that's like, <laughs> that's a proliferation of the story right there. That's literally him sitting next to Father Death, like driving down the road, like careening towards true oblivion. And then finally, they get to the. Uh, there's a scene that happens earlier in the movie where Mary Beth goes to like a stash house. And by the way, the guy who plays the dealer, uh, Cliff Curtis. Is there a single thing Cliff Curtis can't do? Because I swear to God, he has been like four or ten different ethnicities in movies. He is an incredible <laughs> actor. He can literally awesome. he can literally do anything. But they go to that, that scene when he's on the spike is so dope. Yeah, that is like my favorite scene in the movie. He's literally yeah. like they're having this conversation, like his deep moment. I-, I I love I love everything Cliff Curtis is involved in. But then you get like. The scene prior that you see Cliff Curtis in is when uh, he like goes to uh, chase Mary Beth to that stash house, essentially, mm-hmm. and he has this like manic moment. It's a real like Nicolas Cage moment. He's the only guy I wrote it down too in my notes. It's like Nicolas Cage in this movie is real subdued for a lot of it, but then there's also these like heightened moments of mania. But and it's again, it's another reason we've talked so much about this when we talk about Nicolas Cage movies. He's the only actor who can sell this because any other actor in the, in those hands, it just looks like they're overacting. It looks like they're reaching. It looks like they're chewing the scenery, whatever and whatnot. Nicholas Cage is the only one that you can look at. And it's not because of the things he's done in his career, but it's because of the way he approaches the role. He's the only actor you can see doing that and totally believing him. That is like the true yeah. beauty of Nicholas Cage's like, performance and his work is that Nicolas Cage can make you believe whatever you want about him. But Nicolas Cage will make you believe that character is real. That's, that's, that's what's so powerful about him in this movie particularly, but him as just an actor in general. Yeah. Well, there's this, this moment when he's seeing the ghost, right. And raising his own ghost. And then we, we come back and see uh, the ghost of Rosie, what happened, right? right. John Goodman's like, you, it's in this, it's also in this weirdly snowy kind of clean, pristine moment. It's like the meatpacking. There's district. this moment where, where he somewhat makes, yeah, it is a meatpacking fling. That's fucking weird. Yeah. What a set. But the snow gives it kind of this washed thing, right? And he kind of looks at Rosie almost as this like patron or Rose. There's this patron, patron saint throughout the movie. But we, we know that there had to be a bad backstory beforehand. He just gets there late. He keeps getting the breathing, um, apparatus in her stomach, as Goodman says, they lose her, right? It's haunting him so much. Right. Um, so he does that while on drugs, right? <laughs> and he gets out. And so there's this kind of moment when he's hanging on the spike where, again, this is the only guy Nicolas Cage deals with who somewhat comes through it and seems almost okay and happy in the moment. Yeah, like, yeah. Right? Like, wow, what a close call, but I'm okay. <laughs> well, he, like, know? thanks so him he for saving his optimism. life. Yeah, exactly. You know, forget the $10. He's looking at the sparks and he loves his city. There's this like unusual optimism in it. Yeah. And so it's it's a fun role there because you don't get that from pretty much any other person in the movie. And, and I think that gets back to one of the things that is also cool is 
through the drug dealer and Mary Beth, um, the drug dealer seemingly is making people happier than the doctors, right? Like yeah. she actually gets some relief there. Right, exactly. Uh, Mary Beth takes Noel outside and is like, there's no reason to tie him up, gives him water, shows him kindness right. on the front steps of the hospital, but not in. So there's this weird, you know, tugging and pulling at the, the corners of probably Nicolas Cage's beliefs. And, and this is where, to your point, to tie this all up, this is what he does that's so good, right? Is There is this pulling at the seams of this man. And what Nicolas Cage is able to do is this forlorn, defeated face. Eyes that show you a glimmer of hope, but yet his lips are almost curling back and revealing this snarl. Yeah. And, and the amount that he puts into that face is fucking staggering. Yeah. And it's what separates him from the Tom Sizemore character who is all gone. Tom Sizemore is completely manic. <laughs> yes. Right? And willing to fucking... Because this is something else we see with the EMTs is them trying to kind of play God in a miniature way, which is which calls they take. They often complain about Mr. O or Noel, like someone's going to die while we're dealing with these fuck ups, right? Someone worthy of saving is going to die. Right. So there isn't just this life as a life, you know, a lot of the movie is deciding who is worthy of even saving. Right. And a lot of times the guys never save themselves, which is a, an, a another strange wrinkle to it all. Right. Well, I mean, it's interesting to me that like with Marcus, they crash that EMT truck, and like the only other time you hear about it is when he goes back in and asks if he can be fired uh, before he goes out with Tom Sizemore, and he goes, "Oh, by the way, I need that report on the truck." Like that's the only time you ever hear about it. So you, <laughs> but like that to me is it's another one of those things where like this movie is a lot about like the compounding nature of how like horrible healthcare can be like how horrible like dealing with the hospital and like the compounding issues that occur so like what's interesting is literally an entire fucking paramedic truck flipped over and the only thing you hear about is, hey i need that report that's it like it's so low on the left list of priorities needed that like you just need to go out there and save lives so i don't want to hear anything like whatever you crashed it who gives a shit was there alcohol in your breath who cares whatever get out there and save lives like again it's like Nicolas Cage does these things that totally should get him fired, but you realize like it's not about him getting fired. Like he's not going to get fired for negligence. He's just not going to be fired because they need him. They need bodies, just like he says. Like it's a fascinating right. there's a bunch of these little things that kind of just happen like that in this movie that it's fascinating um it's fascinating to me like the compounding nature of the medical profession and him being an EMT that factors so heavily, especially into this the bit with Tom Sizemore of like really creating this growing mania that occurs in Nicolas Cage. Right. And we, we really only get one moment of decency from Tom Sizemore, right? Right. When they go to the homeless shanty where there's a white horse walking through. <laughs> right. In New York city. And he's doing the thing with the patch with the guy who tries to kill himself, right? Like, keep watching this. Mm -hmm. He turns green, fix it, whatever. Nicolas Cage runs in, and the only moment of Tom Sizemore, like, empathy and being a good guy at his job, Cage comes in with a fucking switchblade and is just like, that is the worst attempt at suicide I've ever seen. How fucking dare oh you? Oh, my God. Kill, like, I fucking kill yourself. love that. There are people who actually want to live. And, and we've seen him flip now. Yeah. And then this leads us to the Noel moment where Tom Sizemore probably kills Noel with a bat. Definitely. And we see Cage grab the bat and he wants to hit a car window. Like, in a way, he sympathized with Noel's ability to not give a fuck, right. right? And be outside of the struggle. So Cage is like, he is just pendulum swinging from end to end of the spectrum of insanity here. Uh, and this leads us to the most interesting decision in the movie to me. So he brings Noel in, right, after kind of amping Sizemore up to commit this act of attempted murder. He's going to help Sizemore cover it up, obviously. Right. So he goes to see Mr. Burke. Right. And he can tell that Mr. Burke doesn't want to keep doing this, right? He has no quality of life. They're shocking him like 20 times in the movie. He walks over to the guy, takes his little finger amp, his breathing mask, and then he has these electrodes already under his shirt. And he takes all of that on so that the doctors won't realize that he's dying. Right. And that mixed with the fact that in the previous scene, we saw him give Noel mouth to mouth. After everyone says you never give mouth to mouth to these junkies, right? Right. 
they they take Nicolas Cage and in two moments they they put him so intimately physically attached to the victims of these people, right? To the people he's trying to help. Right. Because a lot of it's been kind of this metaphysical examination. This is a an actual physical attachment. Right. And and you know, through breathing into Noel, he has saved him. Maybe not for the long run or maybe not quality of life, but he has saved him. Right. With Burke, he's actually taking on the, you know, apparatus, which is keeping him alive. So he is in the coma like Burke. It's these very weird decisions to physically tie him to it and watch him react to the kind of totality of this journey. Right. The fact that he had the electrodes on beforehand aside, which lets you know this was a premeditated murder. Right. I mean, there's so much going on here. I I don't know. To me, I actually think that, I mean, I, I don't think, I, I, I actually think it's a really selfish moment. It's really, it's really fascinating to me. Uh, okay, I, selfish. I like that. Go with it. What are you talking about? I'm talking about the Mr. Burke moment. Um, I, yes. I think that is like, I mean, I think that he's hearing a voice, obviously. But to me, him taking that life, him taking Mr. Burke's life, him deciding for Mr. Burke who can't speak for himself, who just like gives the wide eye here and there but in, in and out of in and out of consciousness. To me, what that is, is Nicolas Cage taking control back like Nicolas Cage has saved two people. Wow. OK. Nicolas Cage has saved two people that night. He saves Cliff Curtis and a baby and a baby. Well, well, yeah, Bing Rame saved the baby, but w- whatever. It doesn't matter. Like, so. He saves Cliff Curtis. He saves Noel, giving mouth to mouth. Because you're right. Like, the intimacy, the touches, you're right. Like, intrinsically linking him to these characters is what's really important. Because the people that he truly, like, like giving Noel mouth to mouth probably is the most intimate thing that happens for Nicolas Cage as the EMT. But him taking on that, him taking on that burden for Mr. Burke, I feel like is a purely... It's it's the end of the mania. What it is is him saying like, "All right, I I think he's just going through the motions. Like he's psychotic completely." So what he does is he's like, "I hear this man's voice." Like he's setting himself free essentially by doing that. It's not necessarily wow. it's not necessarily to okay. save that guy. He's setting himself right. free because think about it. Like you're an and EMT. Then he go- okay, I like where you're going with this. Let me jump in with this one. Okay, so that's a fucked up way to read it. That is not how I read it at all, right? <laughs> to me, it was this moment of mercy, right? He had gone through this whole journey, and he realized um, that there might not be a greater truth to all this. And if this guy's just plant food, let him be plant food. Right. So I thought it was an act of mercy on his part and then for Patricia Arquette. I like a lot more what you're saying, that this is the I just can't keep coming here to check on you, burying his ghost. Yeah. But what makes your read so double fucked up, which I love, is then he goes and fucking lays in bed with that guy's yes, daughter. He's like, exactly. Well, I might, I might have more date time if she's not at the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to me, oh shit, dude, his him doing that—that's awesome. Him doing that, like him. I mean, essentially, him like mercy killing. What it is is not. I don't think that's a matter. Of, I really think it's just a matter of he's. It's 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 not it's not one or the other. I mean, it's it's clearly psychosis like he is. He is seeing this. But to me, it's him setting himself free because he's trying to get fired the entire time. And you can't get fired for flipping over an EMT truck. You can't get fired for doing a number of the things that this guy has done. What's the only thing you can really get fired for is like, oh, I'm going to mercy kill a patient. Like I'm going to walk in and I'm going to finally be set free by doing something that I've wanted to do. Since the beginning, which is like everyone's and like he this. He even fucks that up. He doesn't get caught as the. He murderer. doesn't because you know <laughs> he's gonna wind up fucking back there the next day, because it doesn't matter. Like that is like probably the most nihilistic thing I could see in that movie is him literally killing a man, him tricking his coworkers into like literally killing a guy, like just zapping this dude continuously to whatever, or just making sure. Well, he's fine. Whatever. Who cares? But literally, it's the most nihilistic thing you could think of. Like, I'm going to take the place of this dead man. 
Like that. And then goes back and to then Patricia go... Arquette, who he sees as Rose. Yes. She says, no one asked you to suffer. Goes in, and we see him seemingly beginning to sleep, John Goodman-like, like a baby. It's insane. And that's that's, that's where he fucking... gets that's where he gets to sleep. That's wow. fucked. And that's cool, because his whole theory at the start of the movie, it's a good bookend, right? Yeah. The whole theory is, I just need to save one. Mm-hmm. He does save one. Right? Well, he saves a couple, but this is the like one that incites the movie. Right. And then he fucking takes him out. He saves That's a He saves one. Wow. He saves himself. It's oh, purely see, selfish. That's what I was talking about. None of them choose to save themselves. Maybe he did. I think he chose to save himself. He comes in the next day with the the <laughs> fucking poofy hair and the cigar. And he's like, What's up, Big Daddy? <laughs> Big Daddy Cage here. But like I mean, you think about earlier that night, too, like he's screaming at the guy with the blade and he's like, do you have any idea? Like that whole diatribe, which I fucking love in that movie, because you're right. It is Tom Sizemore's like one like redeeming moment because he literally pulls out a blade and he's like, fucking know how to kill yourself. Like Nicolas Cage finally gets to sleep because he saved the one person that he was having a lot of trouble trying to save. Like Mr. Burke, really, Mr. Burke is the metaphor for Nicolas Cage lying in wait like every single night he checks on mr burke hoping that he's getting a little bit oh he's improving a little bit and finally the last last vestige that he has is like i'm going to save this guy by mercy killing him but really what it is i'm going to save myself by unburdening my by unburdening my body of this husk in front of me nice dude that's fucking i like that read so much more it's, but it, it adds a lot because he does that, and then he he sheds Rose seemingly, because there's this cool moment earlier in the film when you know he, you know what's her name Patricia Arquette's like, uh, you got to be strong, Mary Beth. She's like, you got to be strong, or this city will get you. He's like, this city doesn't discriminate. <laughs> it, it, we're all dying right. all the time, right? <laughs> and there, and then with Sizemore, there's this you know shark like we're sharks. You got to keep moving. Don't stand still, or else it'll find you. And as he speeds up, right. He just sees Rosie in more and more and more and more people's faces. Right, yeah. So the idea of being there alone with this this living ghost of his, you know, work mm-hmm. and taking that out, right? Yeah. And then just going and laying in bed with Rose's ghost slash Mary Beth. Yeah. Uh, it is kind of this like, because that's, I guess that would be my question to you if that's your read. Do you think the ending has any hint of optimism at that point? Oh. Like, does Nicolas Cage put this to bed and he's able to somewhat cope and move forward? No. Or is this just like, is, is it all just about how pointless all of this was? I think the optimism is that he gets, a, I, the optimism is you get a good night's sleep. When you're a servant of, when you're a servant of the people like that, when you're somebody whose job it is to save lives or get somebody to a place that saves lives. To me, the interpretation I take away is like, that's his one good night's sleep. Like, he finally gets to sleep, but he's going to wake up the next morning and it's still going to be there and he's going to have to go in and do it all over again. Like, that's like, and I know that's a really nihilistic approach, but to me, that's what, you know, you're, I mean, your wife's a nurse. Like, that's what it is. Like, no matter what, the day is going to come the next day. So you're going to have to wake up. You have to go in. You're going to have to do it. So the least you can do is try and get a good night's sleep. So if you can find a way, however futile it is or however terrible it might be, if you can find a way to rectify that with yourself and go to bed and shut your eyes and sleep for a few hours, that that is what makes that was what makes the difference. That is what makes you a servant right. of the people. Well, in a way, just the fact that you keep showing up and fighting right. is an optimistic take on it. Because if you really, truly believed it was all pointless and useless, right, you would just go sit and you know be a fucking glutton until you die. Right. This right? movie. Like, I'm I mean, this do movie. Whatever be, I like and die. If there was no optimism in the movie, it would be twenty minutes long. Like, I think the optimism is just buried so deep. <laughs> yes, it's easy to read it as there's no optimism, right. but. I guess you're right. Yeah, man. If you if you go to bed and you wake up the next day and we assume he'll go back to that job in a way that is as optimistic as, you know, life can be at times. I think it's as optimistic as this movie. Because you're right. There is This is a very listless movie. There's not a lot of plot or a lot of follow through. There's through lines, but no plot. And I think that's what it is, is it's a day in the life. So for him to go to that extreme to get a good night's sleep, but... It is seems psychotic, but at the same time, like the story begs for him to make a grand statement 
for himself. So if he's going to save himself, quote unquote, why wouldn't he do it by mercy killing a patient and then going and essentially finding the one place he's found solace in the entire story? I love it. Uh, yeah, dude. I mean, I, I honestly walked away and I enjoyed this movie so much more. I think there's just something with getting older and having kids and you kind of grapple a lot more with these big life and death. What's the point kind of stuff? Totally. I can imagine when I was in college, I was just like, fuck that guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> fuck Nicolas Cage's whiny bitch ass. Now I understand a lot more. Right? Yeah. Because I told you, I was like, I watched the movie and I'm like, I feel like Nicolas Cage a lot because I'm a father of toddlers two kids under three so right i often feel exactly like nicholas cage looks in that movie <laughs> so, uh but yeah man to me it's just it's one of those you get a lot of like masters of their craft yeah giving you a movie that doesn't follow very many norms but is such a worthwhile journey uh i mean this movie is just nourishment for the mind and soul and and I think on a craft level, it's really impressive. Uh, and, and as far as a Nicolas Cage movie, while seemingly at the start, the most subdued version of Nicolas Cage will cover this month, I think it's one of his more... I don't know how to phrase this, right? But it's it's one of his more oh, I, intuitive performances. That's, that's not the right word that I'm looking for. I mean, but. I think you're on the right path, though. Intuitive is a good word for it. I'd say it's his most... I mean, I'd say this is where the most realistic version of Nicolas Cage I've seen happens. Maybe well, it's just this, this insane subtlety that holds the, the boiling and roiling madness within. That's what I've latched onto this month is that's how I see Nicolas Cage, right? Yeah. Whether his, his outside shell is a you know, suicidal alcoholic or a living cartoon like Raising Arizona, um, you know, a, a Southern badass. There is this this kind of normal facade that you can just tell is there is something enormous waiting to be unleashed from within him. Yeah. And this might be precise, I guess, is the word I'm looking for, right? It's such a fucking precise per Nicolas Cage performance in that, he is so fucking controlled, but that that madness yeah. is the pressure cooker of his face and body in this are at you know, they're at the red line when thing when people the sirens are running and everyone's gotta get out of the sub. Yeah. I think like that's where we're at in this movie. Yeah, he's I mean, it's such a delicate balancing act. And especially in a Martin Scorsese movie, like that's the really tough thing is like he he gives his actors so much room. We've seen it before with like, especially like the other good movie like Wolf of Wall Street or um, you know any of the other movies where he's had to have a character like be seriously manic. Like you could, I mean, Joe Pesci is another great example. Like he lets his actors breathe. So I think for Nicolas Cage to take this performance and really like hone it and just teeter on the edge the entire time there, that's really kind of like that's really kind of the majesty of Nicolas Cage is. He never has to go full cage, but when he does, it's a real treat, especially when it's in context. But like when you're watching this guy just act and be an actor, man, it's such an amazing perform. It's such an amazing thing to see. Right. Well, that's the break between the Nicolas Cage that we all grew up with. Right. This top movie star of all time. Right. To a lot of the the later years, recent cage where it's he, he lost that that mask that shell that held the madness in yeah and he let it spill out in these these big cartoonish movies <laughs> right and, and so you lost that thing that made him the best which was there is so much going on that you can't perceive but you know it's you know it's there you just can't put your finger on what it is right right it's it's jaws at the start of the movie. Yeah. And Nicolas Cage now is jaws flopping around the deck of the boat. Right. Nicolas Cage now is like jaws 3D. Like <laughs> that's exactly where we're at. Right. He's jaws the revenging it. <laughs> jaws the revenging. Uh, yeah, guys, I hope you fucking love this movie. Um while dark and depressing as many of our Nicolas Cage choices have been, I think there's so much good stuff in this. It, yeah. Uh that you should be able to to have yourself a great viewing experience. Um, to make it better, you should watch it with a friend so you guys can cry on each other and, you know, pontificate, wax poetic. Yeah. 
And then when you do that, share the show with them, guys. Please share us on all your social medias. Uh, rate and review us if that's an option on the platform where you find the show. We're still young. We're putting in a lot of work. The more you guys can help us spread the word, uh, the more it helps us. And the more we'll have a bigger audience to find these cool extra threads within movies we love and even movies we don't know we love yet uh, that we can cover on the show. Please. Thank you for the suggestion, Heath. This was great. Heath, this was a really good one. It's It's been quite a while since I had seen it, and the chances are I would have never watched it again the rest of my life. Same here. So, yeah, uh, great fan pick, guys. That's why we do these. Uh, for the Film Alchemist, I'm Josh Griffey. I'm I Be Banging. Yeah, I Be Banging here. <laughs> Just kidding. You can be I Be Banging, and I'll resurrect you as Big Daddy Marcus. There you go. We're going to wander off, saunter off into the, the, the night of nothingness. Smoking cigars. <laughs> Go look at some whores. <laughs> Peace, bitches. <laughs> <laughs>